Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take The Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume The Sunday World if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume The Sunday World responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip and commentary. You can't beat the sound of a contented cat. That's why veterinary surgeon and natural pet food pioneer John Burns developed Burns Pet Nutrition. Because he knows the positive impact a natural diet has on our beloved pets. And our premium cat food is designed to satisfy even the most finicky eaters. For natural, no nasty, wholesome recipes, choose Burns Pet Nutrition. Available from veterinary clinics and all good pet shops across Ireland. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Freddie Thompson did not go unrewarded for facilitating the murder of his one-time best friend, Paddy Doyle. On the contrary, both he and Gary Hutch were in for a big prize from heir-in-waiting Daniel Kinahan. Kinahan's father had placed a simple structure on his own global drugs organisation, now known as the Kinahan Cartel, which stretched into South America and down to Australia and beyond. On one side was drugs and unpleasant business, a natural fit for his son Daniel to be part of. And on the other was the money laundering end, where the less aggressive Christopher Jr. had been learning the ropes from his superiors. Daniel was preparing to take over, awaiting the retirement of his father, and he knew he needed to start building his own team and appointing men directly under him to act as his drug and weapons buyers. He needed people he could trust to travel around Europe and to cut deals for him while not challenging his ultimate control over the markets. Hutch and Thompson complemented one another totally and the pair seemed to work well together. In the aftermath of Doyle's murder, they had become even closer, blood brothers of sorts, condemned to carry their terrible secret of betrayal with them for the rest of their days. They were hard-working lieutenants and they allowed Daniel to busy himself for the takeover of his father's business by watching reruns of the Godfather movies over and over again and distancing himself from the underlings and hangers-on desperate to get close to him. Within a year of Doyle's murder, Hutch and Thompson were travelling between Portugal, Africa and the Netherlands, frequently hammering out drugs and weapons deals for the cartel. Neither of them knew that they were under surveillance or that their phones were being tapped, but a subsequent police investigation would reveal that both were highly alert in all their business dealings and went to great lengths to make sure they weren't being followed. The skills that Thompson had learned on the streets of Dublin, facing the wrath of his rival Brian Rattigan, was standing to him on the international stage. Later, a Spanish police report would describe the pair as Daniel's trusted right-hand men who were carrying out jobs directly related to the organisation's criminal activities. Freddie and Gary are just one step below Daniel, are very close and share an equal status, the police report would note. 
They sometimes give orders to each other without being able to determine who is higher up in the organisation. They are equals, good friends and share a flat. Freddy, the document would reveal, was also the man who ordered weapons for the cartel and acted as a bodyguard and chauffeur to Daniel. The cartel was growing like a cancer and even had its own in-house killer, with James Quinn moving out full-time to Spain in 2009. Quinn would later be convicted in connection with the murder of Gary Hutch. In this episode of Crime World, we're doing something different. I'm going to do the talking and I'm going to tell you the dramatic and violent story of one of Ireland's most notorious criminals, Fat Freddie Thompson. This is Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. By 2010, business was booming and Thompson was where he always believed he should be, at the very top level of organised crime in Europe. With success came a wealth he could only ever dream of and Gardy believed that he spent like crazy, buying up properties and villas, fast cars and expensive jewellery. He lavished his family back home with the best that money could buy and paid for close associates to go on pricey holidays. In Spain, the group stuck to similar routines and would regularly meet at the old Dubliner bar in the afternoons. Some days, they'd hit the designer stores in Banus and load up on new Burberry and Armani t-shirts and shorts, Versace leather bum bags, eye-wateringly expensive baseball caps and the latest in designer runners. Other days, they'd start to party in the pubs and bars around the port and never stop. The sun was hot, the girls were exotic and the champagne flowed. The coke was not only on tap, but it was bringing in mountains of cash and there was plenty for everyone. Times were the best that Freddie Thompson had ever known. And as far as he was concerned, his war in Dublin was worth every life and every drop of blood. In his mind, he'd only made it to the top because of all that hard work and his incredible cunning. He believed he was made for the life he now had. And when he looked in the mirror, a winner looked right back at him. He liked what he saw. For Freddie Thompson, there were no regrets. But in the middle of it all, there was paranoia setting in amongst the tight-knit group and the Costa. The big boss, Christy Kinahan Sr., was convinced he was being watched and insistent that everyone take courses in counter-surveillance techniques and other methods of outsmarting police. The phones were now doled out every few days, 2,000 a pop encrypted units capable of clearing remotely. The cars were changed on a constant basis and the time-consuming method of only doing business face-to-face was eating up what should have been leisure time. Thompson knew that was the way it had to be and he was used to watching his back. But while his wallet was getting bigger, his world, or at least places he felt comfortable, was getting smaller. In May 2010, Freddie and Gary picked up their designer suitcases and headed for Malaga Airport for a business trip to Amsterdam. They were going to cut a deal to bring in a large shipment of drugs to Europe. Just two days later in Holland, the pair were awoken to news of a major cross-border offensive on the Kinnahan Mafia. It was shortly after 4.30am when police had struck down on the Costa. The Dapper Don himself was tucked up in bed at his luxury property at Torre Bermaja when officers burst in and dragged him to the floor. 
Cunningham and Daniel and Christopher Kinnahan Jr. were also lifted, along with enforcer Kevin Lynch, associate Anthony Fitzpatrick, four solicitors and others linked to the cartel. A total of 22 arrests were made in Spain. In Holland, Hutch and Thompson had escaped and initially looked like the ones that got away. Despite the fact that warrants were soon issued for their arrests and their assets were frozen in Spain, it was clear that accusations of touting would follow. In total, it appeared that up to €1 billion worth of assets had been recovered during Operation Shovel, including the mind-boggling fact that the cartel had bought up a corner of Brazil. As part of their report to the court, Spanish police would later detail the pyramid-style structure of the cartel and place Christy Kinahan Sr. in pinnacle position. To his right, they put John Peter Cunningham in charge of trafficking activities and to his left, Jasvinder Singh Camus as his senior money launderer. Directly underneath the trio, the report placed Kinahan's sons and heirs, Daniel in control of trafficking and harsh decisions, while Christopher Jr. managed business and investments for the organisation. Under Daniel Kinahan, the pyramid continued and Gary Hutch and Freddie Thompson were listed as next in line to the throne. Both were credited with management of drug trafficking, transport and security. On the other side of the structure, Christopher Jr. had his own underlings helping him with the financial labyrinth of the cartel. The months after Shovel were a disaster for the Kinahans as the key players remained behind bars while their case played out in front of a magistrate. It took six months for Christy Kinahan Sr. and his sons to secure bail and once they did, they were forced to sign on at Estepona once a week. By 2011, the Belgians had begun proceedings to bring Christy Sr. back on money laundering charges, while Daniel and Christopher Jr. were stuck in the Costa trying to hold face and get back to business. Thompson, who had left Spain just days before the big raids, had been living like a nomad as he faced arrest if he stayed in one place for too long. For a year, he remained on the move between Birmingham, Amsterdam, Dublin and Marbella. Gardie believe he travelled on false passports and wore disguises in case he'd be recognised at airports. In Birmingham, where he spent the majority of his time, he'd sought refuge from the cartel's biggest customer in the UK, Thomas Bomber Kavanagh. Kavanagh was married to Joanne Byrne, Thompson's cousin. Kavanagh had just recovered from a big bust on his own supply route, which had resulted in all his major partners being swept up and his right-hand man going on the run. But he was running the hugely profitable Irish and UK franchise of the cartel, so it was pretty much business as usual. Thompson's absence from the streets of Dublin gave new gusto to what was left of Rattigan's men, and they made repeated attempts to gain ground and to get at his family. In March 2011, Freddie's brother Richie Thompson and his partner Catherine were attacked in a Dublin pub by a gang of Rattigan's men. Richie had been glassed in the face while Catherine suffered a broken leg. Two months later, a viable pipe bomb was thrown at the back of Christine Thompson's house and in August there was a second attack on the property. An angry Freddie Thompson returned to Dublin, swearing vengeance and sending the city into high alert. Surrounded by young associates, he received visitors at his mother's home and publicly stood in the front garden to let everyone know what he wouldn't do to protect his territory. His return was short-lived and a month after he was arrested at the request of the Spanish. On their European arrest warrant, they had cited that they believed Thompson was a member of the international criminal gang involved in the trafficking of drugs and weapons, a crime that could result in nine years in prison in Spain. 
At the High Court, Sergeant Sean Fallon of the Garda Extradition Unit told the court that Thompson was arrested shortly before 3pm the previous day and when the charges were read to him, he replied, I can't read, I'm not taking that. As he continued his usual games with the authorities and the courts, Thompson's lawyers applied for free legal aid, claiming he was broke and surviving off money he got from his mother. The application was refused. On his next appearance, Thompson told the High Court that he wanted to be sent to Spain straight away. All of those who'd been arrested under Operation Shovel had subsequently been released and there was no doubt but Freddy's decision to agree to extradition was a tactical manoeuvre to allow him continue his life of crime. Thompson had wagered correct about going back to Spain. With his flight paid for by the Irish taxpayer, he returned to Malaga on a Friday and was granted bail by the following Monday to the delight of his partners who held a celebratory knees up for him at the old Dubliner pub. If ever there was a time to laugh at the authorities, the justice system and the police, this was it. Freddie and co were under no illusion, but they were bigger and better than the law. It was business as usual and while Christy Kinnahan Sr. was in jail in Belgium on a money laundering case, Daniel was running the show. At home, Operation Goldeneye had been set up as a follow-on from Operation Shovel and to target their Irish-based criminal partners. Thompson, along with his cousins David and Liam Byrne, were top of the list and he was linked through association with almost a hundred of the country's most serious criminals. Drug dealer Greg Lynch and associates Dean Howe, Liam Brannigan, Sean McGovern and Liam Rowe were all named as being vital cogs in the wheels. Everyone had a distinct role, with Freddie as a senior buyer and negotiator. In Spain, a cocky confidence grew in Daniel Kinahan, who vowed his cartel would be bigger and better than his father's. The heir to the throne had a plan. He wanted to pocket millions from drugs, then re-emerge as the world's biggest boxing promoter. In 2012, MGM, Macklin's Jim Marbella, opened its doors. Nearby, the cartel opened its own pubs, cafes, restaurants and clubs. Thompson remained on the move, flying from Spain into Holland and between the UK and Ireland, sealing deals for major drug and weapons shipments. In September, he found time to settle an old score when Gerald Eglinton, one of those who'd beaten up Richie and Catherine, was shot dead at his home in County Leash in front of his children. The killing continued. During Christmas of 2012, Christopher Git Warren was murdered in Dublin after Thompson returned home for the festive break. Warren, a crack and heroin addict, had had a row with a female associate of Freddie, proving that nobody disrespected Thompson and got away with it. During the funeral, Thompson made it his business to be at Morrissey's pub in Cork Street, where mourners gathered for drinks and a violent scuffle resulted in a number of people being injured. Nobody made a complaint to Gardaí, however, but CCTV footage was reviewed. Despite having no witness statements, Gardaí began a criminal investigation determined to use anything to get Thompson off the streets for a while. Feeling the heat, he headed for the airport and hit the continent again, equally as determined not to get locked up. Christy Kinnahan Sr. was in a similarly determined mood when he was released in Belgium later that year. He headed straight back to Spain, where he was infuriated to find a lot of drug debts outstanding. 
While his son had been busy making a name for himself as a boxing promoter and building bridges with a Dutch coke gang, he had failed to look after the most important job, collecting the money. Kinnahan Sr. called a meeting with Gerard Hatchett Kavanagh and Paul Rice. Kavanagh was a vital part of moving the drugs from continental Europe to the UK, where they were then controlled and distributed by his cousin, Thomas Bomber Kavanagh. While Kavanagh and Rice returned to Dublin to collect the cash, Thompson headed to Amsterdam. There, on May 5th, he was picked up by Dutch detectives on foot of an extradition warrant from Ireland. He was arrested wearing a fake beard and with false papers in an apartment in the village of Overtoom between Amsterdam and Utrecht. Weeks later, his plane touched down in Dublin airport and he was brought straight to the courts where he was charged with violent disorder. In one way, Thompson was lucky again, this time to be off the scene and off the radar of Daniel Kinahan. Daniel was a man on a mission. He wanted to maximise his profits and cut out the middlemen who he saw as unnecessary to his operation. He wanted a direct line to Thomas Kavanagh in Birmingham and he saw Hatchet as dispensable. He'd made new friends in Holland and South America and a merger was on the cards, which left many roles redundant. In May, as Thompson languished behind bars, Daniel and Christopher Jr.'s mother, Jean Boylan, died and her funeral brought the mob home in their droves. On the day of the burial, graffiti calling Gary Hutch a rat was scrawled on an inner city church. In August, Christie Sr. got the news that he was waiting for that he was no longer under investigation for drug or weapon charges, but the laundering probe would continue. It was a huge blow to cops and a huge boost to the Dapper Dawn. That same month, the curious events which would lead to the Regency Hotel and the ultimate demise of the cartel would begin. Then Dutch coke lord Samir Bukharin, nicknamed Scarface, was shot dead in Benahavas in Spain, his murder conveniently paving the way for Kinahan and his partners to merge with his former gang and become the biggest suppliers of cocaine into Europe. That same month, Jamie Moore was shot in the knees at Daniel Kinahan's property. The boxing coach had been staying in the Estepona mansion and had returned after a night out. Daniel blamed Gary Hutch and he left for Amsterdam. With things heating up, Thompson was happy to be off the scene for a while. Weeks later, Gerard Kavanagh was murdered at Harmon's Bar in Marbella. Daniel Kinahan told whoever would listen that a foreign drugs gang displeased with his heavy-handed approach to debts had assassinated him. Yet again, it seemed the murder was far closer to home. In February 2015, Thompson got 20 months for violent disorder, backdated to the previous May. A month later, Paul Kavanagh, Hatchett's brother, was shot dead in Dublin. By August, when Thompson walked free from prison, his sixth sense told him to lie low. A month later, his best pal Gary Hutch was murdered in Spain, and the seeds were sown for another major gangland feud. Just like the murder of Declan Gavin a decade previous, Thompson knew he needed to be on the strongest side and Daniel Kinahan was the obvious choice. While he couldn't quite trust him, he knew he had to keep him close and he hoped his blood ties to some of the cartel's most important customers would be enough to keep him alive. Thompson had worked very hard for Daniel Kinahan's affections and he really enjoyed that feeling of power standing shoulder to shoulder with the big boss outside St. Nicholas of Myra Church in his native liberties. 
It was February 2016 and they had planned it as a show of strength, a display of their gangland army and their contempt for society. Thompson, as one of the chief mourners, had made the arrangements and Daniel had given the funeral the seal of approval. Liam Byrne was so consumed with grief for his younger brother David, murdered days previously at the Regency Hotel, that much of the theatrics had fallen to Freddie, including the greeting of visiting dignitaries from the world of organised crime. Amid the stretched limos, the lavish floral tributes, the pipers, the horse-drawn carts, the motorcycle outriders, the rows of young men in blue shirts and black shades, Freddie took centre stage along with his brother Richie, both thrilled to have been given the job to ferry around the Kinahan brothers. If anyone still thought he was being frozen out by the mob, this was Freddie's moment to set them straight. Beside him, Thomas Bomber Kavanagh stood tall in a pair of heavy black shades. Days later, in stark contrast to the display of wealth and power, Neddy Hutch received an ordinary send-off on the other side of the city. Neddy, the brother of crime lord Jerry the Monk Hutch, was to be the first victim of a slaughter, the likes of which nobody had seen before. After the funeral, Freddie awaited orders from the top and hoped the attack at the Regency meant that everyone had to band together and that loyalties were all that mattered. He knew Daniel Kinahan had to regain control of the city and he couldn't show any weaknesses either. Freddie was ready, willing and experienced in such unpleasant matters. But the call never came. Daniel Kinahan went elsewhere looking for help and Freddie stayed on the move, clad always in bulletproof jackets and regularly in disguise. Often he moved in convoys, always bringing spotters with him as he went from place to place. Although he had split with Vicky Dempsey, he regularly went to see her when in the country, leaving his security personnel outside their rendezvous spots to make sure there was nothing untoward coming at him. No matter what, Freddie always seemed to go back to Vicky and nobody could match her despite his efforts to find a new woman. The Hutch-Kinahan feud was insatiable, far worse than his own war with Brian Rattigan. At first it seemed that the hit teams scouring the city were doing so in the name of David Byrne and that his death was going to be avenged to the highest level but it soon became apparent that it was more about the challenge to power to Daniel Kinahan than anything else. Kinahan threw money at his problem in Dublin and had quickly put together a kill team of North Inner City thugs linked to the INLA. They began the job of picking off his perceived enemies. With senior lieutenants on the ground in Dublin and Daniel back in Spain, Freddie still hoped to prove his worth. But the pressure was growing and growing. Accusations of touting was widespread. Paranoia was at the highest level imaginable. And the city seemed to be awash with offers of blood money. Worse still was the Gardaí, who were on top of everything that moved. Freddie more than ever aligned himself with Thomas Bomber Kavanagh and six months into the feud and following five gruesome murders, one of which was a case of mistaken identity, he knew that Kinahan wanted to up the body count and strike terror into the heart of Dublin. To regain his control, he was adamant that he had to carry out a form of narco-terrorism, the like of which Ireland had never seen before. He needed all hands on deck and he ordered Thompson, an ace player when it came to the business of murder, back to Dublin, despite the critical threat on his head. Thompson was thrilled his help was eventually needed and was adamant that he would claim a trophy for the boss and prove his worth to the mob. He quickly identified an easy target, David Dohy Douglas, the criminal who had spent a stint behind bars for cocaine supply, who was sure he had sorted out his differences with the cartel. 
With a business in Dublin 8, he operated right in the heart of Thompson's territory, but had been accused of being one of two men in a would-be hit team that had been spotted outside the Red Cow the previous November. Then, senior cartel members had fled a boxing event after Liam Rowe spied a duo in a car who he believed were armed. Darren Kearns, a drug dealer and associate of Douglas, was shot the previous December and Douglas had survived a gun attack too. But when he realised he was being blamed as being one of the mystery duo in the car, he'd provided an alibi to the Kinahan gang and was assured it was all a misunderstanding. He'd returned to his normal life and had no problem openly coming and going from his wife's shop on Bridgefoot Street. The fact that he didn't feel under threat and was behaving as normal made his killing a simple job for Thompson, or so he thought. It was July 1st, 2016, and at the same time that Douglas was shot dead, a CCTV camera picked up the image of Freddie Thompson taken at his family market stall at the Guild of the Little Flower on Mead Street. The footage showed Thompson getting out of a Ford Fiesta, crossing the road to the stall and then disassembling a mobile phone while handing the keys of the car to a female. Gardy knew they had to have a rock-solid case if they were going to go for Freddie Thompson for his involvement in the Douglas murder. While he wasn't the shooter, they did believe that he had directed the operation and that he had travelled in convoy around the city, circling Douglas and waiting for the ideal moment to pounce. In the months after the murder, Gardy painstakingly pieced together CCTV from across the city, identifying the four-man hit team they believed to be responsible for the murder. While officers knew they had potentially got a huge case against Thompson, few allowed themselves to dream that they would get a conviction against the thug whose uncanny good luck seemed to continue on and on. In November 2016, Thompson was in the toilets of the North City Hotel in Dublin when officers pounced. He'd just flown in from the UK to Belfast and had boarded a bus to Newry, where he was picked up by two associates before being brought to the hotel. This feud won't end, he joked, forever putting on a carefree front. In custody, Freddie sat in front of the Gardaí who were drafted in to question him in relation to the murder and he knew just what he was going to do. Despite his love of notoriety and his reputation for quick wit, this was no time to shoot his mouth off. Thompson sat back and settled in for a long session ahead. Sergeant Brian Hanley and Detective Garda Sean O'Brien knew Thompson from old and knew just what they were facing as they began the process at Kilmainham Garda Station. Asked if he understood that he had been arrested in connection with the murder of Douglas, Thompson answered, no comment at this time. And so it continued for every question they put to him, including those to confirm his name and date of birth. His murder trial began in May 2018, where the Special Criminal Court heard that both DNA and CCTV linked him to two vehicles used by a group of men working in concert to kill Douglas. Opening the trial, Sean Galan, senior counsel, said it was not the prosecution case that Thompson had shot Douglas. There were many fingers on the trigger, It is the prosecution case that one of those belonged to the accused, he told the court. Evidence given also heard that following the murder, Thompson met up with others for a knees-up at the Little Caesars restaurant off Grafton Street later that evening. His murder trial also heard that during his arrest, Thompson made no comment to Gardee when asked to account for his being in the two alleged spotter cars on the day of the murder. 
When told that the Gardaí believed that his possession of a silver Ford Fiesta on the morning of the killing in the immediate vicinity of the Mercedes, which was later used in the shooting, might be attributable to his participation in the murder, he said, no comment at this time. He gave the same answer when asked to account for his possession of the same car on Mead Street immediately prior to the murder. He was then asked to account for his possession of the key to the Fiesta at that time. It was put to him that CCTV footage showed him giving the key to a named female on Mead Street. He again replied, No comment at this time. He gave the same reply when asked to account for his possession of a mobile phone, which was broken up and assembled by him on the same occasion. He was also asked to account for his DNA being found on a air freshener and hand sanitizer in the Fiesta, but again he replied, No comment. He was questioned about being in a blue Mitsubishi Mirage at the entrance to a car park near St. Stephen's Green that evening and about his DNA being on an inhaler found in that car. But again, he replied, no comment. He gave the same reply when asked about his fingerprint being found on the rearview mirror of each car and on a birthday card found in the Mitsubishi. Like a confident poker player, he held his calm as he dealt his own hand a defence which claimed that his human rights had been violated, that his reputation as a dangerous criminal explained away his peculiar-looking activities on the day that Douglas died, that Gardy are not properly qualified to investigate murder, and that he was simply going about his ordinary business as the state claimed he was circling his prey. As the case closed, the three judges retired to consider their verdict. Thompson faced a long wait behind bars for the ruling in what would be one of the hottest summers in decades. In the end, it was over very quickly, and in one word, guilty, came the finish of Freddie Thompson's bloody reign of fear and murder that had spanned two decades. Aged just 37, he was given the mandatory life sentence by Justice Tony Hunt at the Special Criminal Court after a lengthy two-and-a-half-hour hearing detailing the evidence that led to the guilty verdict. Thompson had arrived into court with the strutting confidence and smug smile that many had become accustomed to during the course of his trial. Chatting to his mother, Christine, and sister, Lisa Jane, in the body of the courtroom, he seemed upbeat and cheerful as he awaited the arrival of Justice Hunt and his colleagues, Judge Flan Brennan and Judge Gerard Griffin, who would decide his fate. The Special Criminal Court is different to the ordinary criminal courts as no jury is present, but the same tense atmosphere exists on Judgment Day as it does when 12 men and women retire to consider the future of an accused. In the case of Freddie, few were willing to nail their colours on which way the hammer would fall, more from a sense of unease than anything else. While the evidence presented to the court had been comprehensive, detailed and thorough, the accused had an uncanny ability to slip out of all sorts of circumstances. When the chips were down, it appeared Freddie Thompson usually had luck on his side. Wearing a white shirt, navy tie, navy trousers and blue and white runners, Thompson thumbed through a red Bible in the courtroom while Justice Tony Hunt began his lengthy recall of the evidence. During the trial, the non-jury court had heard that Douglas was shot six times shortly after he took a meal break at the counter of his partner's shop, Shoestown. A semi-automatic pistol with its serial number removed was found next to his head. 
Painstakingly, Justice Hunt went through the evidence as realisation began to dawn on those in court that this could be the end of the road for Thompson. Justice Hunt said there was no doubt that Douglas had been murdered and that it was an execution involving intricate advanced planning and coordination. He pointed out that the prosecution did not suggest that Thompson was the person who fired the shots, but that he was one of the people involved. Specifically, he said, Thompson had been driving a Ford Fiesta that was intricately involved in the murder plot. The Fiesta was seen interacting with other vehicles and individuals involved on the morning before the shooting. It also drove past Shoestown four minutes before Douglas was gunned down in what Justice Hunt said was a final check before the gunman arrived to carry out the planned execution. In the dock, Thompson often shook his head as he thumbed through his Bible, likely just a prop for the media. But the outcome was beginning to look more and more bleak and the joke was probably no longer funny. Justice Hunt said Thompson was caught on CCTV acting in a furtive and suspicious manner on nearby Mead Street around the time of the shooting. He dismantled a mobile phone and was seen later that evening at a restaurant with two other men that the court said were involved in the murder plot. The defence had argued that while Thompson's activities were suspicious, the evidence relied on by the prosecution had fallen well short of proof of guilt beyond reasonable doubt. But Justice Hunt said that any innocent explanation of all these different strands of evidence would require an excessive reliance on unlucky coincidence. Referring back to Thompson's arrest when he'd answered no comment at this time, to everything put to him at Kilmainham, Justice Hunt said the court had taken into account his failure to answer Gardy when they questioned him about his movements on the day. He said that the prosecution had largely relied on circumstantial evidence and that each individual piece was not in itself enough to prove guilt. However, taking all the pieces together, the court was satisfied that the prosecution had proved beyond a reasonable doubt that Thompson was guilty as charged. Freddie regularly shook his head over the two and a half hour deliberation and as Justice Hunt went over the evidence. When the court's decision was finally revealed, he took up his Bible and stormed out the door leading to the cell area, followed by prison officers and a Garda officer. He returned less than an hour later without the Bible and wearing a less formal blue T-shirt and black shorts, a lame bid to show his contempt for the court. Justice Hunt sympathised with Mr Douglas's family, particularly his daughter who witnessed the shooting. He said it was a terrible thing for anyone to see and he further commended the guardie involved in the case, saying that the standard of the investigation into the execution was second to none. Michael O'Higgins, senior counsel for Thompson, said he'd be appealing the decision and outside the court, Detective Superintendent Paul Cleary said the family of Mr Douglas was satisfied with the verdict. He added that the investigation continued. Away from the cameras, detectives heaved a huge sigh of relief. Many had spent the majority of their careers chasing down Freddie Thompson. But there was no doubt, but his conviction raised questions as to why it took Gardy so long to bring him to justice and what lessons could be learned from his career. Thompson had gone from a street thug to a monster, but all the while as the state looked on, watching his notoriety and celebrity grow. For the communities that lived under his brutal reign, his end couldn't have come sooner. 
And yet it seemed he returned time and again like a cancer that couldn't be eliminated. Like all players in the dog-eat-dog world of organised crime, Thompson has been replaced on the streets of Dublin with a number of players lining up for his crown. But behind bars, he continues to aggravate and is constantly seeking ways to challenge the authorities of the prison service and indeed the state. Only last year, he brought a high court action claiming an alleged failure of the prison service to respond to questions about the conditions of his detention in Limerick Prison, where he'd been moved after an incident in Portlaoise Jail. Thompson claims that the way he was being held in the prison amounted to a punishment, saying that as soon as he arrived in Limerick, he was confined to a padded cell without his clothing or personal items and that he was isolated from other prisoners. He says that he wasn't informed by the prison authorities why he was moved or if he was there as a disciplinary sanction. He's complained the authorities refused to answer questions by his solicitors. He had been kept at Port Leash up until the move in October of last year and has cited formal complaints he made about the conduct of prison officers in Port Leash in the years before he was transferred. In 2019, he told the High Court that he made complaints which he says were upheld in a report. However, he also claims that neither he nor his solicitor were given a copy of the investigator's report into his gripes. After he made the complaints, Thompson claims he was mistreated at the hands of prison officers in Portleash and made more reports that he was deprived sleep at night due to banging on his cell door. The convicted murderer who has always tried to cite his rights throughout his dealings with the authorities, says that he has been denied access to newspapers, that his dietary requirements have been ignored and that his cell is the subject of overly frequent searches by prison officers. When he was moved to Limerick, he says he was told he would be there for six weeks but wasn't given a reason for the transfer. He claims it's a punishment but that he wasn't the subject of any disciplinary hearing, nor was he provided with any paperwork informing him that a sanction has been imposed on him. Arising out of this, it's emerged Thompson has brought judicial review proceedings against the governors of Limerick and Portlaoise jails, the Irish Prison Service and the Minister for Justice. The prison service are well used to lags making complaints and trying to drag them through the courts for perceived offences and breaches of their human rights. The judicial review isn't the first time Thompson has brought a challenge over the conditions of his detention. In 2019, he brought a high court proceeding against the prison authorities for what he claimed were oppressive conditions of his detention for 18 months in Portlaoise's prison A4 wing, which is known as the punishment block. He was there, the court heard, because he was troublesome and intimidated younger lags. Both the prison authorities and the Minister for Justice opposed the action, saying his regime was due to security concerns. And the claim was eventually withdrawn when Thompson was moved from the isolation block back to the mainstream prison population. Amazingly, during the three-month challenge, which was estimated to have cost the taxpayer more than €100,000 in free legal aid. It was heard that the long-running feud with Rattigan was over and they no longer wished to harm each other. Rattigan even filed an affidavit saying there was no bad blood between them anymore. 
But few believe that the old rivalries have actually died away and that simply the pair share a deeper hatred for the authorities of the state than for one another. In an incredible twist of fate, Rattigan's luck turned just around the same time that things went south for Thompson. Although he had initially been handed down a life sentence for the murder of Gavin, the conviction was overturned in 2017 and in October of 2018 he pleaded guilty to manslaughter and was later jailed for nine years. That sentence was backdated and led to his release last year from prison. Despite fears of what his release would mean to the delicate balance of peace amidst the gangs of Ireland, he has so far remained off the radar and although he was spotted outside his family home in Drimna last summer, rumours have persisted that he's moved to Spain. While Rattigan had been in prison most of his adult life on sentences for serious drugs, firearms and assault as well as the original murder sentence, it seems for the moment... He is enjoying the last laugh and his freedom. Perhaps he's kicking back under the Spanish sun and although he does insist he's changed his life around and intends to go clean, many have adopted a wait-and-see attitude to his reformation. But what is for sure is that the tables have turned and while Thompson now keeps busy bullying younger prisoners and thwarting the system that has incarcerated him, it is clear that when he backed Kinnahan, he put his money on the wrong horse. You've been listening to Crime World, a podcast from sundayworld.com. Produced by Ian Mullaney and edited by me, Nicola Talent. If you like the podcast and love true crime, why not download the free sundayworld.com app for lots more stories from Ireland and across the globe. Would you like to be able to start conversations like a pro? Take the Sunday World, your daily dose of what's going on. Do not consume the Sunday world if you're involved in a drug cartel, you're a politician with something to hide, or you've appeared on a reality TV show and care about others' opinions. Consume the Sunday world responsibly. Always read the stories, gossip, and commentary.